0: this is an email letter which will land in your inbox on Fridays, sharing five of my favorite cultural or creative discoveries of the week. You'll find all that on lexonthedex.substack.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Hot Girls. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Hello and welcome to Hot Girls with me, Lex on the Decks. Last series, I looked at the careers of some of the most successful female artists of all time, breaking down their journeys to learn how they got to where they got to and also how their success Felt on the inside versus how we experienced it from the outside. This season, I'm going to take a look at the lives of lots of powerful female creatives, focusing on a particular quality which they embody to me and which can have a positive impact on all our lives, I think, if we just bring it into our own lives a little bit more. This episode, we're going to take a look at an artist who actually came up in last week's episode with Jasmine Dottowala. She's someone who I wouldn't say is a household name so much nowadays but she's had an impact on many of the big singers of today. An artist who released 14 studio albums over a professional musical career spanning 25 years. Often described as the ivory queen of soul, she's been sampled by artists including Sierra in One Two Step, Mob Deep, The Fugees in Fuji Lala, La, Jada Kiss and Nicki Minaj. This is a lesson in faith as taught by Tina Marie. Ladies, ladies gentlemen, listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls. With Lex of the Deck. in the mix. It's fire. We're it going. We are fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. On the 5th of March in 1956, Mary Christine Brockett was born to Mary Ann and Thomas Brockett. Mother Mary, not so creative with the naming there. She was their fourth child and would quickly adopt the name Tina Marie. Singing was her great love from a really young age. Her family was one of those where, pardon me, the kids would perform for entertainment in the evenings. My sisters and I used to do the same. I think before the internet, a lot of kids used to do that. She credits her parents with bringing her up on the music that infused her soul. They had record players constantly on in their house and the favourite artists that she listened to were Frank Sinatra, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan as well, who she credits as being her all-time favourite singer. She was introduced to the Catholic Church, also by her family, and as a musical place, there was a connection formed there between singing, soul, and spirituality. So the first lesson from Tina Marie, which she adopted early on, was a connection between your creative gifts and God. And uh, I've always felt that, uh, that God had a special intention for me in my life, doing music, and uh, I appreciate and thank Him for that every day. She sang for local churches, and her mum talks about how happy she was singing. And it didn't matter who was listening. She would just turn it out. We took her to the uh, mass one Sunday, and the priest started to chant. And she started singing the Banana Boat song. day day daylight, come on, me go home. It was very embarrassing. You sleep down in your seat a little bit. I was only two. I heard it somewhere. I don't know where I heard it, but that was the first thing. That's the first song that anyone ever remembers from Tina Marie. In her late teens, Tina's family moved to Venice, Los Angeles. This move had a huge impact on her because it was here that she really found her space. While she was a little white girl on the outside, she found her spiritual home in Black communities. She felt much more comfortable there, much more invigorated than she did in more white neighbourhoods. She said things throughout her career, actually, like, I'm a white artist with black skin. I don't know if you would say that nowadays, but 30 years ago, racial segregation in the States was more visible and overt. I understand you're from Venice, California, yes, which has been getting a lot of publicity. Lately, BC. What's, what's so great about Venice? Everything. The vibe, the people, the atmosphere, everything. I think moving location at an early age instills a sense of independence in you because you've seen different things. Often you don't set such strong roots down in one particular place. You know that there might be a, a place that you're more fitting than the place that you're from. While in Venice, she became very close to the neighborhood matriarch, Berthaline Jackson. And this woman was someone she described as a second mother, so they were extremely close. As a strong figure in the neighborhood, she also furthered Tina's strength in faith. Where I really needed direction, she'd always tell me, I love you, but God loves you best. Mm. Tina's musical ambitions grew with age, and she eventually recorded a demo tape with a band she'd pulled together with some of her friends. She took this to loads of recording companies, eventually managing to get it into the hands of someone at Motown Records. Barry Gordy, who founded the label and was running it at that time, invited her in and ultimately signed Tina Marie as a solo artist, saying they unfortunately didn't have space for a group, but they saw something in her. Two years after originally being signed, Tina Marie still hadn't been able to release a single. So I just want to pause here and think about how painful, frustrating, and also quite frightening that must have been, She had that initial elation of being signed to a label, having resources at her fingertip, having studios, having people who wanted her to succeed, but then not being able to find a song that everyone could get behind. And also then not being paid anything for two years because you weren't paid until you actually had a single out. So quite nerve wracking. To try to protect her from getting dropped, her manager came up with a bit of a plan and arranged for her to start singing and working with a group. The group were also signed to Motown and they'd been having similar issues actually getting the right song out. But while Tina Marie was maybe a, quite vulnerable because she was just by herself, that group had two of Barry Gordy's sons in it. So they felt like they were a little bit more attached to the label. However, while it seemed like a good idea, after she'd done a few sessions with the group, she found that they wrote songs with offensive and quite overly sexualized, sex, sexualized sexualized lyrics, which made her angry and uncomfortable. She was the only woman in the group singing alongside these lyrics about her body and tits and stuff. And she was one day she just had enough. She left the studio. She got in her car. She drove a long way away, called her manager and said, get me out of this group or I'm done. At this point and throughout the two years before, Tina Marie had to keep the faith that she was in the right place and that at some point things would change and she would get her breakthrough. And I feel like Given many of us are in lockdown right now, oh sorry, not lockdown, but a version of a not normal, maybe we all need to keep a little bit of that faith that something will come good, there will be change. Fortunately for Tina Marie, despite the struggles that they'd been having, Motown, her label, still believed in her potential and they decided it was time to just call in in some different people. There was someone who at that time had the fame and firepower to potentially elevate her and give her a platform. And his name was Rick James. He was very dominant in music. Um, He was an R&B singer, but he was also a producer and a songwriter. They called up Rick and were like, we want you to work with this girl. They sent a demo and he wasn't keen to work on someone else's stuff because he just wanted to focus on his own work. But because he liked her voice, he took it up. As soon as she started working with Rick James, there was a real transition in Tina Marie's creativity and confidence, and she recorded her debut album, Wild and Peaceful, in 1979. The label made a decision to keep her face off the album cover because they didn't feel the face and the voice matched, and so they wanted people to hear her before they saw her. The process of making that album was the start of a very important relationship in both of their lives. After the first album, Tina was growing confidence, as I said, and she knew that one day she would write and produce for herself. But she had to do another album first, and Lady T was the nickname Rick James gave her, and it was also the name of her second album. She's a woman who produces her own records, which is extremely rare. It was extremely rare in the 80s. I'm going to shake things up at this point, and rather than take you through Tina Marie's musical journey, I'm going to look at some different brackets of her life that required her faith to overcome them, or to kind of navigate And I'm gonna start with her relationship with Rick James. Tina said of of James, Rick knew there were feelings in my heart and songs upon my lips. He didn't say, this is a white girl, I can't produce her. Our relationship grew into something really beautiful. Rick James was charismatic, creative, exuberant, and also kind of crazy. Him and Tina Marie were creative soulmates and that is a very powerful, that relationship. They were meant to come together and create, but it was a partnership full of chaos. They started as collaborators. They then became best friends and that evolved into a romantic relationship. Tina Marie joked that they were engaged for about two weeks, which is probably about as long as they were in a happy relationship. They went on tour together and pretty much straight away they broke up. She broke up with him because while she may have been his number one girl, he wasn't prepared to give up his number two girl or his number three girl or his number four girl etc. And I don't think he thought she would actually leave him. He wanted to maintain that control over her. So they would have huge fights on stage. They would be physical, emotional. They would be nasty to each other when their mics were off and then sing at each other when they were back on. She spoke about how Rick James would always have glitter in his hair. And at that time, the glitter was made of glass. So when they were performing on stage together, he would shake his head and the, the shards of glass would essentially cut her. Savage. While when speaking about it in retrospect, Tina was able to be very clear on leaving Rick James at the time. I think it would have been the hard decision. If you can imagine, uh, Tina and James were on tour together. They knew they were going to be spending loads of time together. And she was enamored by him as he was her. But Tina Marie knew what she wanted and what she wanted to be to someone as well. And maybe this is touching on something personal, but I'm sure the shots who have been in a similar place, that place of I want you, but I don't want you in this way. You have to have faith in that situation that there might be someone better out there for you. When the crowd pumps up like that and roars and I I tell them, you know, that I'm not just representing me, I'm representing my, you know, my, my boy, you know. And when I hear the roar of the crowd like I did last night, I know he can feel that, you know. And that's healing for me as well because I know wherever he is, he's in a better place, you know. And that's what I really, really focus on because he had a lot of pains and illnesses, you know, within his body. And he was just tired of being here. You know, he wanted to go to the next level. And uh, so I'm happy that he was able to do that. In 2004, Tina Marie and Rick James reunited to tour together. But two months after a performance at the BET Awards, Rick James died of a heart attack at 56 years old. He'd been struggling with serious addictions for a while, in particular with cocaine, which ultimately led to his early death. As you heard, Tina's faith really helped her through this, seeing that he was in a place of peace and she would continue their legacy as long as she could. Okay, so the next really interesting thing that Tina Marie went through, which I wanted to pull out, was a legal battle with her record label. It was a legal battle that, did at the time, and still is having a huge impact on artists today. So when she was initially signed, as I spoke about, Tina was signed to Motown Records. The label was founded by Barry Gordy in 1959 in Michigan, and Smokey Robinson was the vice president. Both of them worked closely with Tina, and she had a really good relationship with them. However, after releasing those first two albums, and after she sort of had that breakthrough, she increasingly wanted to be... An everything artist. So be the singer, songwriter, producer. She wanted that creative freedom. She wants to be trying out different things. And I think she felt that she was restricted by a label where Rick James would always be more important than her and... She also hadn't financially been compensated properly for a lot of what she'd done, but they refused to release her from her contract. So she signed with Epic Records. Motown then sued her for breach of contract. And her lawyers countersued Motown for some of the things that they'd failed to do um, to provide her as a label. And Tina Marie won. This changed the whole game in in the industry because it was the underdog, the little guy, the individual standing up against the big label and the big label legal teams and winning. And that then meant that Luther Vandross, George Michael, Tom Petty, they were all then able to get out of restricting contracts and have the creative freedom that they wanted as artists. So it really was changing. And you still hear about it a lot now, artists getting stuck in contracts because they sign them at such early stages of their career when they don't really have that much to, to they don't have that much leverage And then five years later, they might be in a totally different position, want to go to the next level and be at a label that thinks, you know, they're okay, but they're not the priority. And that actually became known as the Broca Initiative, named after her family. What was also nice about that is she managed to stay very close to Barry Gordy at Motown. It was very much a battle for creative control, but not a personal battle. (laughs) The final thing I just want to touch on that was, that was a really big part of Tina Marie's life was being a mother and her daughter Alia is a singer today and kind of carries on her legacy because the two of them performed together. And Tina Marie said in an interview, that's what I'm proud of the most, i.e. being a mother. Her final project that she worked on. So Tina Marie actually died at age 54. Um, she would had a head, a couple of head injuries and sort six or six years later, having had a few seizures, uh, she died of natural causes, expected to be connected to those. But the last project that she worked on with her daughter was called Beautiful. And um, what Ali has said about it was, if you listen to the lyrics, it's almost as if she was making that transition to the spiritual world as the record was being made, which is incredible. It's like we're going on this journey with her. So I just want to finish this episode on Tina Marie and I hopefully you'll go and have listened to her. She's she's very soulful. Um, she has a beautiful, powerful, the kind of voice that she pours every single part of herself into when she sings. But I heard this little clip of her talking about Aretha Franklin and I just loved it for two powerful female singers hanging out. It just thought it was a wonderful little encounter. So thank you for listening. Uh, we are back next week with an interview with Tremendous. But yeah, I hope you enjoy this. Have a good week. Bye. She said, I prayed for you so many times in the last two years. And I just thought that was so beautiful because I, I, it helped me it helped me to get through it. But Aretha had a big wad of cash, but this big, and she took a picture with us. And when I took the picture home to take, to, to blow it up, she had her arm around my daughter Alia's shoulder, and she had about $50,000 sitting on my baby's Shoulder right here. (laughs) And I showed that to my daughter, who just absolutely loves her, and I said, You ain't never, ever gonna be without money.